0: This was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets.
1: So the number for me was a number that would allow me to
0: never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top.
1: I went from a sale of you
0: know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure. Maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing, you get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the value builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. My next guest, Dr. David Bach, is a Harvard-trained scientist, physician, and a serial entrepreneur. Get this, he has started and built three healthcare companies that have grown in value to exceed $100 Dollars. His latest of which, Leprechaun, went on to be one of the fastest growing companies in America, delivering a 990 9, X return on investment for his investors. So what's his secret? Well, it turns out there is a methodology he goes through for picking a business idea that he discovered between idea number one and number two. And in this episode of Built to Cell Radio, he shares that strategy with you. Enjoy this interview with Dr. David Bach. Dr. David Bach, welcome to Built to Cell Radio. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You have started four companies. You must be among one of the only people I know who's actually started four companies. Touchstone Healthcare, um, Empyrean, Leprechaun. Platypus Nero, what's your secret?
1: <laughs> um, I, I think perhaps like many of your listeners, um, the, the secret to my success is that I'm, I'm just foundationally insane. And you, know, I, I, and, you know, I've read books about the character of an entrepreneur. And, you know, it's like one of those things where I read it and I'm like, oh, that's me. Uh, you know, I, I retired after the sale of the last company, and I lasted—I don't know—two years. And I was—I was utterly committed to being retired. You know, I—I I kind of had hit my number, and I was working really hard. And two years later, I was like, "This—I just want to get back in the game." Hmm. So I think—I think I'm just constitutionally made to be an entrepreneur. And you know, as I'm as I'm doing it, it just gives me juice and energy and it feels like this is you know kind of what I was born to do.
0: Let's go all the way back to your first company Touchstone. What I mean tell me what you guys did and and what that experience was like for you.
1: Okay, well, um, let, let me begin and say the value that Touchstone offered me in my life was primarily to teach me about how to not start and build a business. And so I, I have a friend who talks about being an entrepreneur as, as eating dirt. And, you know, it was seven years of just absolutely grueling work, eating dirt, where, you know, ultimately we got the company successful and profitable and all of that. But it was a very, it was a very challenging experience. Um, What did you guys do? So What what we did is it it was it was an HMO or, you know, it it is an HMO um, in New York City um, offering care to Medicare patients. And I I got the idea from a previous job when I was a venture capitalist, uh, seeing some people do this. And I was like, this is a a great idea. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, when I put together the business plan um i and other people who looked at it looked at it and said oh my god this is brilliant i mean it was it was this economic model for doing things where you get really good quality care and doctors would make money and we would make money and on paper it just looked great and we were going to grow really fast and then we started it and you know nothing nothing worked whatsoever and it, I my background, I, I wasn't trained as a business guy. This was actually my first job, other than as a management consultant or a venture capitalist. So I'd never really been part of a business. I'd never run anything before, and it was—I um, hope you don't mind me saying it—but it was just a pure clusterfuck. And <laughs> not at all. <laughs> you know, I, I think what I would what I'd like to talk about with Touchstone is actually that I, I think the lessons I learned really taught me what, what I should and shouldn't do. And, and there's two major lessons I came out with. The first one was we, we had a product which looked good on paper, which we thought people would want, but when we went out to sell it, we just weren't getting, we weren't getting bites from our customers. People, people were unimpressed by the story and we had to tell, and So we had a lot of trouble with selling. And so I think the first lesson that I internalized, because it was so painful to just be missing our revenue goals, was that never again in my life do I want to go out into the world and offer a product that people aren't kind of ravenous for. You know, I sort of swore to myself next time when I go out to sell a product, people are going to be beating down my door. Uh, The other thing that I learned which I think was a very valuable lesson from it was this was something that sounded good, but it really didn't play to my strengths. You know, I, I figured out cause now i you know, I've been through it a bunch, that there's a few things I'm really, really good at. And there's a very large number of things that I really suck at and running an HMO plays to all of my weaknesses. It, it's actually a, you know, it's an operational game. There's very little, where, you know, being smart or clever or whatever gets you anywhere, it's all, you know, it's all about, you know, it's all about operational execution. And there are people for whom that is like their area of strength. But what I realized is, you know, I'm a pretty good salesman. I'm really good kind of conceptually seeing things that other people can't see. And, um, you know, and because of my background, you know, I'm, a doctor and you know at this point but you know, got business experience and had scientific training. When I play to my strengths, I can have a competitive advantage and this played to none of them. So um that you know that's what I'll tell you about. Um you know in the end, you know, the investors basically got their money back. I walked out with a little bit of money, but um it was it was it was mainly a, a learning experience
0: for me. <laughs> and how did you take that, those lessons and apply them to your second business, because I understand you went through a, a bit of a process to get ready to go into your second business. Maybe, can you describe that at all? Yeah. Um,
1: so yes, it, it, I, I spent about nine months, you know, basically spending down the money I had gotten out of the first business, trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I want to give a shout out. At the time, I belonged to EO, the Entrepreneur Organization, which back then was actually called um, YEO, to show you how long ago it was. And um, I got a lot of support from my forum group. But um, I decided I wanted to start another company. And with my forum's help, we decided that before I do it, I want to make sure in advance that it was a You know that it was a good idea, and so we started and we made up a list of criteria for what my next business would be like. And it was a you know it was a very formal list. And the first thing is what I told you, which was I wanted to be sure we had a product where it was kind of guaranteed we would go out there and there would be ravenous market demand for it. Um, And you know, a second thing was building on what I learned from um, from Touchstone is. I wanted to have a competitive advantage by virtue of my background. So I knew that going into this business, uh, there had to be something about it where I could do a better job at it than somebody else as the CEO. and i you know I was pretty clear about my strengths, and I was pretty clear about my you know my weaknesses. and then, you know I had a a, a number of other criteria. and then we came up with. One of the, and I wish I could say this was my idea, but one of my formates came up with this idea, which was just insanely clever. Um, I'm, a, I'm a healthcare guy, right? My, my first business was in healthcare and I was a healthcare consultant and I'm a doctor and a scientist. So it, it was natural to be in that space. And we said, well, if you want to build a business, which is guaranteed to grow, the first thing you have to do is you have to find a problem in the market that nobody else is solving, where, you know, where clients are motivated. And we wanted a, a problem which was of high importance to people. So what I did is I, I went on, a, you know, what, what's now been dubbed a listening tour, and I started calling people I knew in the healthcare world. And here's the question I asked, and these were like leaders in healthcare. I said, tell me a business problem which is going to be really important to you a year from now that you haven't start, started to worry about right? Something which is going to be a huge problem for you in a year that you haven't started to worry about. And, you know, and and I got on the phone with CEOs of people, you know, CEOs of some companies and they referred me to their other friends. And I'll tell you something, people love this question. I got to talk to the CEOs of some fortune 100 companies and John, they loved it because, you know, these CEOs are thinking quarter by quarter. And it was the first time anybody made them think kind of down the future. And so, I would schedule, you know, half an hour with people. I would get an hour and a half. And I did 150 of these interviews. Wow. And it was just all asking that same question. And as they went through it and they started to speculate, themes came out and there were 35 ideas. And they were all ideas like, here's a problem which is getting worse, which is going to be a huge issue for these people. They don't have a solution. Can I solve it? And then I was just like, can I come up with a business plan that I have unique value for. And out of those 35 ideas, then I went through with my forum group and we sort of systematically checked them off against the criteria. And we came up with two ideas, or I did. And one was for my second, one was for my third company, um, you know, Laprican and Empyrian. And they both did, you know, by all measures incredibly, incredibly well. Um, And you know, it was a it was just a great thing. And I'll tell you, in doing the market research, it also set me up because by the time I went into the space, I had already talked to some potential customers. So I had my pipeline built. I had talked to people in the space. And so it was very easy to construct a management team and to come out quickly with a product. And um, that's what I did for the second and third one. And then recently when I went back into the game, that's exactly what I did for this business. And you know, sure enough, just like happened for the second and third company, you know, I've now come out with a product, or we have come out with a product, which is just, you know, generating massive, massive consumer demand, and it's been a, it's been a really good formula for me.
0: I'm so fascinated by this idea of a listening tour. Did you actually call it a listening tour, like in your emails and correspondence with doctors and and no, that that, that was a that was a
1: phrase that Hillary Clinton popularized after after I did it. Okay. So I, I, I don't remember what I called it. I don't think I, I actually, I don't think I called it anything. But
0: How did you land those meetings? Well, I mean, I was already connected in the healthcare industry. So I, I started,
1: I started with 25 people who I knew who I knew would take my call just because they were my friends. Uh, but what happened is, as I said, I started to talk to people and they were like, holy shit, this is fascinating. I haven't thought about it. And so I was getting, you know, like I said, CEOs of large companies giving time because they found the question provocative. And, you know, one thing people said is they, they kept wanting to hear what everybody else was saying. You know, so if I would talk to the head of an HMO, they would be like, well, what are the heads of the other HMOs saying? And actually, ultimately, kind of as a favorite, all the people I, I talked to, I wrote up a white paper, you know, a 25-page white paper saying... I've done these 150 interviews and here are the major themes that I've heard about what people think are going to be problems coming down the road. So.
0: And, and David, did you promise that white paper upfront as part of the pre-pro quo to get the interview or, or was that just something after the fact that you, that you did as it was, it was,
1: it, it kind of evolved. I mean, um, you know, I, was, I, pr- I made the decision that I was going to do it by around the 20th interview. It, I can't believe I remember this, but on average, you know, I would talk to people and then I would say, who else should I talk to? And on average, every person I talked to gave me like two and a half referrals because they were like, oh, you know, you should talk to so-and-so and so-and-so. And so, you know, it really quickly went to the point where I had way more people that I could interview than... Um, You know, then there was time for.
0: And did you do it under the guise of trying to discover your next business idea? What was the What was the sort of premise? I was was super. I was super honest about it. You know, like I I mean, I would be.
1: You know, I I learned this all. You know, when I first read the book "What Color Is Your Parachute?" and I left Madison to go into the business world, I mean, I realized that then. You know, people love doing informational interviews if you're not selling. Someone, uh, you know, it's not hard to get people to, to do this kind of thing. You know, I mean, I don't know about you, but like, y- you know, I would imagine if I was like, look, I want to write a book and you're an amazing author and you published this amazing book. Would you give me 10 minutes of your time to talk to me about your experience about writing a book? I mean, my, I don't know you very well, but my guess is you'd say, oh, okay, maybe, you know, G- you know just because, you know, it's like a pay it forward thing. So I think. It was, I was super honest, and I didn't have, I didn't have any trouble. But again, I think the, the, the thing which made this plan work so well is that the question was interesting to people. They weren't doing it as a favor for me. It was really, it was provoking these people to think about something that they should have been thinking about, and they didn't. Right. I mean, you know, you're the CEO of a company. You better be thinking about the problems you have that are coming down the road that you're not worrying about yet. And you never did, do. So it's a, it was a useful it was a useful exercise for them to sit back, you know, and, and think about it. Right.
0: You know, I just interviewed Cal Fussman, who. Um, Writes an Esquire column and is a as a, a well known podcaster and he says the best questions are the ones that make the person being interviewed curious themselves and it sounds like you came up with one out of interest how did you actually come up with the idea for the question itself it was
1: I, I like I said it wasn't me it was um I, there was a guy in my forum named Jeff Moore um, who came up with the idea and and that question. I just went I just went for this yeah.
0: What's the secret of getting people to keep talking? In your case, you asked for 30 minutes and in some cases they lasted for 90 minutes. Uh, what, what did you do to keep people talking?
1: Well, the first thing I want you to know is I, I didn't try to keep people talking. I was trying to be efficient with my time and I was actually trying to be respectful of people's time. Um You know, I mean, you do podcasts for, you know, as part of your living. So, I mean, I think you know this. I think that um, this is not my area of expertise, but I mean, I think when you are genuinely interested and you're listening hard and you're asking clarifying questions and asking provocative questions, I mean, I think that'll keep people engaged. You know, I I mean, I know that works for me. So I, I think that's. I think that's my strategy. I, I, I mean, realize I was not, I had no ulterior motive. I was just like, talk to me about your problems and let me know more. And, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a magical question, right? Anytime you go to somebody and say, tell me about your problems. I'm really interested. I mean, who, who doesn't take that question, right?
0: As you went along in this listening tour, you, you mentioned you got to 150 150- Interviews. At what point in the process did the themes really start to become clear to you?
1: Yeah, and that's a really good question. And and it was after about sixty or maybe seventy of them. I mean, it, it is a regular phenomenon. You do that kind of thing. There comes a point when all of a sudden you start hearing the same things over and over. The second half of the interviews were actually digging deeper. And so what was happening is. By the time I was halfway through, I had my list of here's the 35 things I think, you know, could be potentially viable businesses. And then I had to go back in and start digging. You know, I mean, I remember I spent a ton of time thinking about a nurse, a nurse staffing company because, you know, everyone, everyone I talked to was like, you know, we have a huge shortage of nurses. It's only getting worse. We don't know what to do about it. And I was like, oh, my God, that's like right. That's like a a dream company. And so I I, I pursued it really hard. And then just finally, you know, I hit a point where like, well, wait a second, I can't solve this problem. And so I did like five or six interviews, which were very targeted around, you know, around that.
0: Understood. How did you avoid the temptation to start? I guess, you know, we've all been, um, I'll speak for myself. If we, from time to time, I'll have a conversation with someone who's got a quote-unquote business idea, and, and I can tell that they built the idea up so much in their mind, they become so married to it that any sort of criticism or, or anything less than overwhelming enthusiasm for me is met with almost a defensiveness. Did you find yourself, as you got deeper and deeper into the interviews, sort of formulating hypothesis and then wanting to defend that hypothesis?
1: Never. But but remember where I had just come from, right? I had just gone through seven years where it ended and I said, never again. So I was the guy who started with the brilliant idea and nobody could tell me I was wrong. And after those seven years, I was was not going to make that same mistake again. So during this, you know, during this listening tour, um, I... I, I was super skeptical. I mean, I was I was I was burned, and I didn't want to go back into the game until I had like checked every box. And remember, I had I, I wasn't pursuing one idea; I had thirty five ideas, and I was just whittling them down. So the whole idea was, you know, I would look at this idea and say, "Prove to me that you're going to work," you know, and I would just keep poking it, and then you know, they they would just die along the vine. So. It, it was really different. I, I was not like I was not like the classic entrepreneur where like, oh, I have a problem and I'm going to solve it for myself. And now I want to bring this out there. I started with the market and I was like, prove to me that you're a good business idea. And I am I am dumping you the minute I have any skepticism about you. So it was just a completely different approach, you know, and it's, it's a very non-classic entrepreneurial thing. At that oh, point, a- I just did not. I didn't give a shit about anything except for give me a product i can build that people will buy
0: it's you know? it's very much the scientific it, method you know? isn't it yeah it, it was, was just my it's, background right yeah well, it, 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 uh, because because i think entrepreneurs hearing that saying 150 interviews i mean i'd be bored after six but you come at it from a very different angle right you're a scientist by training and by background your parents were sci- i mean you know that's your wheelhouse
1: well, I, but I want I want to say something about that. Um, you know, because I, like, this isn't purely a scientific thing. Like if, if you're, yeah, here's my initial reaction. If somebody thinks they're going to be bored after talking to six customers, you know, you know, for whoever out there is you have that thought. I mean, I would ask you to think, are you really an entrepreneur? Because like, if you really want to be a, a good entrepreneur, you have to like be fascinated continually by your customer. I mean, I, I'm, this, this isn't just science. This is like, you know, when, when I build a business, my, you know, my entire existence is centered around who is my customer and how can I create value? And they, you know, they become the center of my attention and I, I am utterly fascinated by them and will to, you know, to my dying breath. And so I think this is not just a scientific thing, but it's really like, you know, if I want to create value, it can only come from curiosity. It can only come from really, you know, understanding the customer. Cause like, right. I mean, this is all like the classic stuff that I learned, you know, it's very common. I think for you to, focus as an entrepreneur on what you think the customer should want. I have this product and I know this is good for them and I know why it's good for them. You know, and after my, and my first company, we had a product which was good for the customer, but that didn't matter. What it has to do is they have to, it has to meet their needs and their needs are not always the ones that you think they are. You know, these are very emotional things. And so you've got to really, You got to get into the mind and the heart of the customer and know what moves them and what what represents value for them rather than what you think is valuable. And I think if you get there, then, you know, then it's really easy to do a dance for the customer. Otherwise, what you're doing is you're, you know, you're fighting against the
0: tide. How do you ask these people in these interviews about their their willingness to buy. One of the things that I'm, I'm kind of curious about, and I know a lot of entrepreneurs are probably doing the same thing as they listen to this, is they're saying, yeah, but I want to know, like, would a customer buy? I, you know, once I've, once I've sort of formulated an idea of, an, of, a, of a business, I want to ask them, like, would you buy and how much would you pay for it? Did you get into that level of questioning and how did, what did you learn about asking those sorts of questions? Well, I have no
1: problem. I mean, I have no problem asking that kind of question. But I, I mean, I want to, I'd rather not talk about that process because I mean, I just started another company and I went through a year of marketing research before starting this one too. And, you know, did focus groups and talk to customers. But I mean, I think, I don't think, um, I don't think anybody that I can think of minds if I go in and I say, look, you know, here's what I'm thinking of as the product. And, you know, would you buy it? You know, what would you pay for that? I think that's a pretty reasonable question. I mean, I don't know, in the world I travel in, you know, people like entrepreneurs and they want to help you come up with something. And I think, you know, I mean, I've got all sorts of people who are pretty honest with me saying I would never buy that or I wouldn't pay more than this or, you know, whatever. I don't think that's a difficult problem to have.
0: How do you avoid, because there's a lot of people, and I've seen this myself, uh, asking people about business ideas, especially in the early days of, of running a company, you know, out of out of the desire not to be mean-spirited or, you know, not to put a, a pin in your balloon, people will, you know, placate you and say nice things and say, hey, that's a great idea. You know, I think that's a, that's a winner. That's your million-dollar idea. You hear that sort of thing from, or at least I should say, I have heard Though, that sort of sentiment from people yeah, well, I, I think don't want worse, to hurt I my think feelings. That. I, think it, I
1: think there's two things at play. The first thing is, you know, sometimes people will not want to hurt the, your feelings. But the second is people are notoriously bad at knowing how they will behave. And so, you know, there's all sorts of famous psychology studies where people say, I'm going to do this, and then they go about doing that. You know, like I, I remember, this is again because I'm super old, you know, there was this famous market research study where somebody said, you know, if you had time to watch the Playboy channel and the Nature channel, right, this was, I don't know, 30 years ago, how much time would you spend on one or the other? You know, everybody is like, I'm going to watch National Geographic, I'm going to watch the Nature channel, and you know, sure enough, what they tune into, right? But the thing is, they just don't know what they're going to do. They, they think they're going to do one thing, but the truth is, you know, we are not driven by our logic. We are driven by these very primal things. And so, I, I mean, I think it's much worse than you're describing. I think when you go and talk to somebody, you, you know, I want to be really clear if, you know, I'm, I'm not somebody who will go to somebody and say, would you buy this? What would you pay? And I take it at face value. What I actually am listening for is, is the emotion underneath it. And so when I was doing this, what I was listening for is someone's emotion. I, you know, if we talked about a nursing shortage, you know, and you talk to the CEO of a hospital, you can tell whether or not, you know, he or she is losing sleep over it. You know, you can tell and It's like they're going to be like, you know, and, and if they're just like, yeah, 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 we're having a problem with the nursing shortage, you ignore it. But if you, if you if they come to you and they're like, you know, metaphorically, like grabbing you by the neck and saying, dude, if you can come in and you can solve this problem for you, I will give you you know, my right testicle. If they say something like that, I'll be like, OK, I believe you because right? you can feel it. You can feel this is not placating. You're, you can feel this is a huge problem for them that they don't know how to solve, it, right? And and you just gotta, you gotta listen for the greed and you gotta listen for the fear. And once you see that, then you got to winner. Otherwise, you know, otherwise, yeah, I mean, there's a million ideas people think they like and they're not gonna pay for. That's why I was saying, it's like, you know, you've gotta, you've gotta go for something where, like, people are gonna be ravenously hungry. Like, they cannot
0: live without And that's exactly what happened with your next two companies. I'd love to just finish off with an explanation of the two companies that you did build as a result of this listening tour. So just describe, if you can, in layman's terms. Remember, our audiences are not medical people or, you know, of every stripe. What, what does Empyrean do and what did Leprechaun do? Maybe describe that if you could.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, they're both kind of still around, although in, you know, in different iterations. And so it's more like, what, you know, what, what do they do? Um, so I'll start with Leprechaun, um, that cause, it, cause it's like, it's a more kind of compelling story about it. So back in the day that I was asking these questions, well, per, first of all, our customer was what are called Medicare HMOs. And so these are HMOs um, and, but their customers are not like companies. Their customers are elderly people who want private insurance rather than getting insurance from the government. And so, you know, these are people who are eligible for Medicare and they say, I'm going to sign up with you know, United healthcare rather than just like the regular government thing. Okay. And, one thing you've got to know about Medicare HMOs is, is they get paid in a really weird way. They don't get paid by the customer. When you sign up as a client to become a participant in a Medicare HMO, then the government will actually, you, you file something with the government and then they will transfer to you the payments that they would otherwise expect to make, right? So you sign up a patient and then you get a check from the government every month to cover you um, for the costs associated with it. Are you with me so far? I am. Okay. So those were our clients. Now, at the time I was doing my interviews, when I was talking to the CEOs of these Medicare HMOs, they were saying, you know, the government's changing their formula for how we're getting paid. And it goes into effect in a year. And I haven't really paid any attention to it because I've been way too busy. Right. So you talk about like a compelling event that they haven't dealt with, you know, that right, it's like slapping you in the face. And so as I investigated this thing and remember, I'm a, you know, I got like perfect background, I had actually run a Medicare GMO, I'm a doctor. What I discovered is they were completely, completely changing the formula or these HMOs and a bunch of the HMOs were going to get creamed. And these are public companies, right? They were going to get creamed because the new formula um, could kind of cut them off at the knees. And so here's what happened in the first formula, the one that used to be in effect, people were getting paid just based on the demographics for their, for their patients. So, you know, if you're a 75 year old woman from the Bronx, then, you know, they might get $750 a month. Right. And, doesn't matter about anything else. All that matters is, you know, that you're in the Bronx, you're a woman, and you're 75. The new system started to pay people not based on demographics, or at least not entirely. It started to pay them based on their clinical conditions. So now all of a sudden, if you're a 75-year-old woman from the the Bronx, but you're completely healthy, the premium is going to be like 400 bucks. But, you know, let's say you have diabetes, then, you know, it's like 500 bucks. But if you have diabetes and you broke your hip and you have depression and, you know, emphysema, it could be like $2,500 a month. So they were paying money based on how many clinical diagnoses you had. And here was the thing. The HMOs had put no attention into reporting information about the clinical diagnoses that their patients had, and they were missing like more than half of the diagnoses. And so when the new system came into effect, they were going to get creamed and they were massively underreporting. And it was coming in a year and nobody had put any attention on this issue, which was going to, you know, which would either sink them or, you know, allow them to really swim if they could solve it. And so when I did these interviews, I was like, holy shit, this is big. Right. I mean, because this is the, the Medicare HMO industry is enormous and the entire Medicare HMO industry is getting hit with this thing. And nobody has started thinking about it except for a couple plans. And because of my medical background, I was like, I know exactly how to find the diagnoses that are missing and I know how to collect them and I know how to make them more money. And so what I did is we built up a machine learning algorithm where we could look at their billing data, predict what diagnoses are missing and then go pull medical records and find them and report them. And so, you know, we were like, we moved the stock price of big Medicare HMOs. We came out with a product when nobody else did. Within six weeks of starting the company, we were profitable and we owned 8% of the market share of all Medicare HMOs in the country. Because this was a problem, like when it hit, people were like, oh my God, this is a disaster. And we were the only ones out there with a solution. And it was, this, I mean, it was a huge win, right? How quickly did this company grow? Um, we, we were profitable in six weeks. We went from one to 140 employees within a year. And we sold it, generating a 90X return for our investors in 19 months.
0: Not bad. More listening tours.
1: And, and, oh, and it was the fastest growing company in the country. Yeah, it was cool. Now, you know, nowadays it would be considered puny compared to like, you know, the Ubers and the lifts, but back then it was actually a, you know, it, it was a, it was a pretty big, it was a pretty big deal. You know, it's amazing how the world has changed because like the numbers I'm talking about now are, are infinitesimally small compared to what you see nowadays. But, um, you know, the size of, Size of, you know, the, the magnitude of what you can do with a company today is so much more than it was 10 years ago. It's incredible.
0: Who ultimately acquired Leprechaun? I mean, it was acquired by a company called XL Health. And what was their sort of strategic reason for wanting it? What were they, how did they see it fitting into what they were doing? Well, I mean, look
1: the, the bottom line is that we, we essentially were the first players in what is now a large industry. You know i mean if you think about it the the business of looking for missing diagnoses is worth a lot of money to these hmos and so we were the first ones in there but ultimately there you know now there's like four or five major players and they all have you know a pretty sizable presence and excel wanted to get into the space for a variety of reasons and so you know they they got funding from goldman sachs and they did some other stuff and they actually ultimately took the company and grew it pretty nicely Um, but you know it was you know like you know in in our prep call we talked about the you know the sort of the challenges people associate with selling it was not hard to sell leprechaun right I mean it was an industry people were waking up to we were profitable we were growing really fast and you know when the investment banking world looked and said okay this is a major industry that's evolving larger players the healthcare world came along and said we want to be a player you know, we, we can either try to build it from scratch or we can acquire, you know, this company. And at the time, you know, we, we weren't only the leading player in the industry. We, you know, we had sort of invented in the industry and there were some new people coming in, but we owned, I don't know, you know, we had, I don't know, 20 times as much business as, as the next largest player
0: at the time. It's an amazing story. David, where can people uh, reach out about, uh, and, and find out more about Platypus Neuro or yourself, or would you direct them to LinkedIn or is there a website they can learn more about you?
1: Well, yeah, I have a, a LinkedIn profile. The, the company,
0: this is the first time
1: I've done a podcast in like two years where I haven't talked about the company I'm doing right now. But um, the, the the website is platypusneuro.com. So I'll spell it. It's a really long name. And we're actually going through a name change. But it's P, P as in Paul. L A P like in Tom Y P U S Neuro, which is N like in Nancy E U R O dot com, um, and I, I just want to give a shout out. It, this is to talk about market research for something which is going to change the world. We have neuroscience technology where we work with elite performers like you know athletes and hedge fund traders and the like, and our technology. Rewires and dramatically upgrades their brain so they improve their cognitive performance, and it directly translates into things like more points on the scoreboard and more profits in the hedge fund and This is another industry where, after market research, it just became clear you know it's going to be an explosively large industry over the next five or ten years, and you know it it's not going to be quite the leprechaun story. other people have caught on the opportunity a lot sooner than they did with leprechaun, but it's, it's going to be a very, very big industry, and it's a really, really exciting ride.
0: Well, you got me curious. PlatypusNeuro.com, Dr. David Bach, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Bye.
1: Thanks for listening to Built to Cell Radio with John Warrillow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog.